0: Welcome back to The COVID Pod with Dr. Ashish Jha. Today, we are talking about variation. And this year has been filled with so much change, but on today's episode, we are specifically focusing on virus variants, new vaccine types, and possibly some variations to typical Valentine's Day plans. Today is Friday, February 12th, 2021. My name is Kate Ryan, and I am joined by Amelia and Rotma from the Brown Daily Herald.
1: Hello, my name is Amelia Sagaitita, and I'm a senior editor at The Herald. And my name is Rahma Ibrahim. I'm a science and research section editor.
0: As always, we are so grateful to welcome Ashish Jha, who is the dean of the School of Public Health here at Brown University. Thanks for listening, and feel free to email us if you have any questions. first thing that we were thinking about is um, the CDC recently sort of changed their guidelines to say that anyone who is asymptomatic and has received the second dose of their vaccine does not need to quarantine if exposed to COVID-19. Um, and last time we talked about how it was sort of unclear whether the vaccine would completely reduce transmission. So what do you think is the implication of these new guidelines?
2: Yeah, so this is like the, the million dollar question, right? Like, Do vaccines reduce transmission? And um, I think the CDC is right in their decision uh, or their recommendations. And it's basically, it's I think they're coming in line with what where I think the emerging evidence is. And the emerging evidence is that vaccines reduce transmission. Am I 110% sure? Or no. Um, but that's what all the data seem to suggest. And therefore... Uh, and by the way almost every vaccine not every vaccine but almost every vaccine reduces transmission of the disease so why would we think this one is going to be different and then the question is how much and could we envision that this vaccine these vaccines would reduce transmission 100 percent? i don't think so so there probably will be still a little but my best guess based on all the data is that it's probably in the 70 to 90 percent reduction range but we're not sure And i think the cdc is basically saying but that's where all the evidence is pointing and that's what we should focus on and we will get better data and i suspect that that's the range it will come out to and that's great news by the way because if it didn't reduce transmission then my gosh like then we have a whole different set of problems
1: so speaking of vaccines uh, we wanted to transition to um speaking about another development the us and worldwide vaccine tracker Uh, that was developed um, through a collaboration between Brown School of Public Health and Microsoft AI for Health, um, which just launched online February 5th. Uh, Could you tell us um, about the purpose of this tool, describe what all those numbers and maps show, and explain a bit about how this tracker was created?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, so we've had a collaboration with Microsoft uh, for a while now, and we, uh, if you go to the website globalepidemics.org, which is run by, by us at the School of Public Health, um, we've been tracking cases by community, by congressional district. Uh, we've been doing a whole lot of work on testing and testing targets, and so vaccines seem like the obvious next place to go in terms of tracking the data. Uh, the data largely comes from where some of their other vaccine trackers, like Bloomberg have, has one. They all sort of come from the same place. They come from states and they come from the CDC. So we're not doing our own personal tracking, but we're really pulling in data. And um, the idea behind this, and I, what I hope is, will be really useful for people, and by the way, it, yeah, so let me just, is that there are two sets of things that I think are going to be important. One is uh, there's a lot of information that is that we need to have Uh, beyond just how many people have gotten vaccinated. We need to know who's getting vaccinated, how much it varies by age, by race and ethnicity. And we're starting to pull those together into one place. Uh, We're hoping that that's gonna be a useful, um, uh, useful set of insights. But the other part is, I've described three sets of things now that we're tracking, cases, testing, vaccines. They are not unrelated to each other, right? In fact, you may think that it's really important to vaccinate people in places where there's high number of cases happening. And I would agree with that. Um, So what this tracker lets you do is start pulling these three things together. And so you can go to your community and your, and again, we don't have the data quite as granular as we would like just because it isn't available yet and it will be. But ideally what we'd like to be able to get to in in the weeks ahead is you can go to your county, certainly your state, look at infection numbers, look at vaccination numbers, look at testing numbers, and really get a sense of how the broader pandemic control is happening. And we're not aware, or I'm not aware, of any tracker that's really pulling it all together like that.
1: Have you been able to notice any trends so far between those three factors?
2: Yeah, so I would say right now, um, we're just, well, a couple of things. I mean, we're, again, we're just starting to pull this stuff together. Um, it does. It, it is true that we see no real correlation between places with high infections versus places that are doing a good job on vaccinations or bad job or or how vaccines are getting out. And that's unfortunate because you actually want to see more aggressive vaccinations happening in places with high infection numbers. Uh, We don't see that yet. Uh, We don't see that happening. So that's a problem. And and my hope is that uh, we can take these kinds of data, go back to policymakers and say, you've got to really push on on vaccinations, in, especially in those areas.
1: And the tool also mentioned uh, trying to see whether the U.S. can reach that goal of 100 million doses in 100 days. And kind of looking at the status of vaccine distribution right now, what does it seem to suggest about our nation's ability to reach that goal? And what factors or efforts do you think may influence those trends?
2: The 100 million in 100 days is what President Biden uh, said in early December when he was president-elect Biden. He wasn't in office yet. And um, and that seemed like a really ambitious goal at the time. To be perfectly honest, like we're at almost 1.5 million doses a day right now, and that's what we've been averaging. So my gosh, we've got to be able to hit 100 million in 100 days. It's like something's going to have to go horribly wrong for that not to happen. Um, personally... And the people in the administration don't like me saying this, I don't think, but I'll say it. I think we should be hitting two million a day. Like, that's where we need to be. And I just think we should be... I'm not saying they don't like me for saying this. I'm just saying that's a very ambitious agenda. And um, that's what I would like for us to do. And... And so, are we targeting? Are we on track for 1 million a day? I think we're going to hit that easily. You know, President Biden did come out and say he thought he, we could do 150. Uh, that's 1. 1.5 a day. I think we're going to blow through that. I think the question is, are we going to get to 2 million a day? And the reason why I say 2 million a day is my target, it's not just I'm making up a random number. I'm thinking about two things. I'm thinking about the UK variant and how it's spreading and when it will become widespread in the United States. And I'm thinking about What is it going to take to vaccinate all elderly, older, high-risk individuals? And if you try to get older, high-risk individuals all vaccinated before the UK variant becomes widespread, you got to be at 2 million a day in order to get there. And uh, that's the challenge. So that's why that should be our internal target.
1: Speaking of variants, which is a term that's been in the news a lot recently, could you give us and our listeners a quick overview on the difference between variants and strains?
2: you know, so it's a really good question. Um, and ultimately, these, que- this, these things are really about functionality. So let's take a, a moment and actually take one more step back and talk about mutations versus variants versus strains. Um, the way to understand the biology here is that RNA viruses, like this virus, are notorious uh, at like making mistakes. They just have Every time they replicate, there are just a ton of mistakes that they make, ton of mutations. And 99.9999% of those mutations are irrelevant. They have like little to no meaning. And the helpful part about these mutations is actually you can use them to track uh, where the virus is spreading and who's spreading it to whom through these kind of genomic sequencing analyses. Um, but all of those different mutations are functionally the same. So what causes something to be a strain? It's a different strain if it takes on different functional capabilities. So if it becomes more contagious, if it becomes more or less deadly, if it is able to evade immune response much more effectively, if there's something functionally, meaningfully different about it, then you call it a different strain. And then while you're sorting out whether a set of mutations is a strain or not, we often talk about it as a variant. And variant is really kind of meant as a short term, shorthand for this probably is a different strain, but we're not 100% sure and we're still sorting it out. So I think most virologists and immunologists I talk to would call the UK variant a different strain because I think we have pretty good evidence now that it really is functionally really different. Um, And some of the other variants, like you know, there was a little talk of the LA variant uh, that was popped up in Los Angeles. And calling that a variant made sense because we didn't know: is it really a different strain, or is it just going to turn out to be nothing? Um, So that's that's. I I see variant as a short-term terminology used when you're not sure whether it's a different strain or not, and you're sorting it out.
1: Yeah, and we've also heard of other variants: um, the South African, the Brazilian variants. So I guess, and you've mentioned obviously the UK, which might be a strain and um, the LA variant. So how many variants do we know of so far and what do we know about them and how far have they traveled? Yeah.
2: Um, there are lots of variants and, um, the ones that I think we're all paying super close attention to right now are the UK one, uh, the one found initially in UK B117, there's B1351 that's from South Africa. And there's what's called P1, uh, which is the one from Brazil. And we don't, by the way, know that that's where they originated. That's where we first identified them, right? So that's the other part of it. Um, but if we're going to shorthand it and say the UK, the South and or the Brazil, uh, those are three that are all here in the United States. And we think the UK variant is circulating reasonably widely. I suspect it's in all 50 states or most of the states. Uh, it's been identified, I think, in 35. But my take is the other 15 probably just haven't identified them yet. Um, The South Africa variant is interesting in that it may be a bit more contagious. The UK variant is clearly more contagious. Uh, The South Africa variant may be more contagious, but it does seem to be more effective at evading immune response. I still am very optimistic, and we can talk more about this, that our vaccines will work against it, but we're we're less sure. yeah, just it may work a little less well. I wouldn't say we're less sure. And then on the Brazil variant, we know much less about it. There is some data to suggest that people who've been previously infected um, may not have protection against the Brazil variant, um, but I don't think we know that know enough about that right now. And there's a lot of work being done to sort that out.
1: Sort of on that same note of people being previously infected with COVID nineteen and their risks for being infected again with these variants. I know you mentioned we don't necessarily know much about that, but what does the data that we have currently say about people's ability to be infected twice by another variant?
2: Yeah, so vast majority of the, of the infections right now, the virus circulating is still the kind of native strain, right? The, the original strain and people getting reinfected with the original strain, we think exceedingly unlikely. Uh, We don't know the real number. Officially, it's about 10 or 12 people have been reinfected in the United States out of 25 million. I suspect the real reinfection rate is much higher than that, but not, I shouldn't say much higher than, it's higher than that, but probably not much higher. Meaning, bottom line, if you've been infected, your chances of getting reinfected are not zero, but they're really, really low. Okay, how does the variant stuff change that? Um, I don't know that I've seen any data that suggests that the UK variant changes that at all. So if you were previously infected, recovered, I, now you get exposed to the UK variant. I don't think it changes your likelihood of getting reinfected. But we're, again, not sure. There is some evidence that South Africa and Brazil variants uh, lead to more reinfections because of some amount of immune res- uh, escape. But the evidence is really weak. Um, Uh, and certainly not, yeah, certainly not perfect. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a little bit of immune escape, certainly from the South Africa variant where we may have the best data on that. Uh, but I actually think that the vaccines will protect us against that. So what's interesting, right? Here's the bottom line. Natural immunity from having been previously infected may not protect you against the South Africa variant, but vaccines probably will. And that's interesting, just a reminder that vaccines can generate much, much better immunity than natural infection can. I think a lot of people assume that natural immunity is the best immunity, that having got, but we have very good evidence for lots of diseases that's not true, that we can generate much, much better immunity using vaccines uh, than natural infection does.
1: Kind of going back to vaccines um, and how many have come about um, from research in recent months, um, I do think that like Pfizer and Moderna seem to have become pretty household names when talking about the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, But last time you had alluded to some other companies who are in the process of developing and testing their own vaccines, Um, like Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, AstraZeneca, as well as um, some developed in other countries, uh, like I believe Sputnik V was being developed in Russia. Um, So what do you make of all of these different versions? Um, How are they different? How are they similar?
2: So there are a lot of different ways of making vaccines and you've seen companies around the world trying to make make them in different, different ways. And um, my personal take is we need all the vaccines we can get uh, as long as they're safe and effective we should be able to come up with different uh, modalities. Different modalities have advantages and disadvantages. Um, mRNA vaccines like the Moderna and Pfizer, which are fabulous vaccines, are really hard to store and manage. They need to be frozen. And Pfizer one particularly needs to be frozen at minus 96 degrees for um, for extended periods of time. So, um, whereas things like the Johnson Johnson vaccine can be refrigerated, does not need to be free- frozen and uh, and and so you can imagine why that would be a huge advantage in many many places um here's where we are as of today february 12th johnson johnson vaccine has been submitted for authorization to the fda and the fda is going to meet on february 26th so two weeks from today they're going to make a decision i would be shocked if they don't authorize it based on the data we've seen, but they might not. FDA has a pretty high bar. They're gonna do a very vigorous review. But i say I'd be shocked just because I know the people who are working on the developing that vaccine and they wouldn't have submitted it unless the data was really very good. And so I expect an authorization in the day or two that follows. Uh, there are a few million doses sitting around, but not tens of millions. So in March, probably not a huge impact of the Johnson Johnson vaccine. You'll start seeing some people get vaccinated. And then once we get into April, May, you'll see that become much more widespread. The one thing I will say about the Johnson Johnson vaccine is its headline number seems to be not as good as Moderna and Pfizer. People are like, oh, it's only 65 or 85. It's a very good vaccine based on all of the data I have seen so far. We'll see more in the next couple of weeks. It's a very, very good vaccine. I would recommend it for any family member. Uh, I would not be hesitant to get it myself. Um, I've gotten the first dose of the Moderna vaccine, I'll be getting my second soon. But the point is, I would be, I'd be very supportive of my wife getting it who has not been vaccinated yet. Uh, so it's a very, very high quality vaccine and I would not pay too much attention to the headline number. Novavax, um, again, we we're gonna get more data on that. I think the AstraZeneca trials that are being done in the United States, uh, I expect them to read out, meaning get some data on those in the next month. So by the time we get to mid-March, and I can imagine a late March, early April FDA review and an authorization. Um, and Switnik 5 came out with their data. It's really good. Um, so my the good news here is this is a virus where we've figured out how to make good effective vaccines. Thank goodness. Uh, but it there are just going to be challenges of like producing enough, and getting them out. And then by the time we get to May, we're gonna have a different problem, which is we are gonna have so much vaccines in the United States and we're gonna have not enough people who wanna get vaccinated because we're gonna run into all the people who have vaccine hesitancy, people who are um, worried about taking the vaccines. And we've gotta start working on addressing those concerns now.
1: And so I know you touched upon this a little bit um, before, but given the evidence to date, what do you think it suggests about then these vaccines potentially help with um, distribution as well as minimizing the impact from those variants we talked about both here in the US as well as looking more globally.
2: Yeah, so I think the evidence we have right now says that certainly the Moderna Pfizer vaccine, also I think Johnson Johnson, is gonna work very well against the UK variant. So I'm unworried about that. I think it will work a little less well against the South Africa variant, but well enough that if you got vaccinated, you're gonna do fine. Even if you might have a slightly higher risk of getting infected, uh, I don't. I think people will not get sick and die, which is what we care about, right? Preventing severe illness. So I'm really, really, uh, at this point, very confident that these vaccines are gonna hold up well against the, var- the variants we have. It doesn't mean that there won't be a variant in the future that will escape our immune response. And I actually think one of the things we need to be doing is much more genomic surveillance to look for those variants And then if we see one emerging that looks like that, uh, working on updating our vaccines uh, so that they can be more effective. There's a lot of work here. Just it's this is not a one and done. Like it's not going to be we all get vaccinated and everything. Like we have to continue monitoring, continue paying attention. And the last point on this is because it's a global pandemic, uh, if we just get America vaccinated but don't get the world, the world isn't vaccinated. It's going to be a huge problem, obviously, just from an equity point of view. Uh, But also, if we see large outbreaks happening elsewhere, America's largely vaccinated, it's going to be the sort of um, the grounds for emergence of of new variants that will render our vaccines less effective. So there's a there's both a I think a a selfish as well as a a more solidarity oriented uh, set of reasons for really having a global approach to vaccines.
0: Speaking of all of these complex problems, we sort of wanted to highlight something hopeful, which is the course that you're teaching with Dr. Megan Ranney called Pandemic Problem Solving, which is for civil servants and other leaders. What do you think that will look like over the next month or so? And what are you looking forward to with that course?
2: No, I'm super excited about this. And and the reason is, you know, the pandemic has felt kind of paralyzing, right? Like, I mean, it's just sort of disrupted our lives and people feel like, I don't know how to to manage problems and like, what can I do? And we're all in this sort of suspended animation, just waiting for these vaccines so we can start getting things back. And what Megan and I and our whole team realized was like, there are lots of people who during the pandemic have confronted problems and solve and made progress and and done really remarkable things. And they have lessons for all of us on how we get through the rest of this pandemic and how we deal with future ones. And so it's very problem solving kind of uh, oriented course where we have experts in business, political leaders, all sorts of folks uh, who are gonna participate and talk about how they dealt with uncertainty, how they made decisions, and, and then the hope is that the students in the course where um, or a lot of them are, are from NGOs or government or private sector are gonna talk about how it applies, those lessons apply to their real life. So it is very practical, it's supposed to be hands on. And I guess for me, A, it's, it's meant to give people hope and something they can actually do, teach them a set of skills. But I have to tell you, I'm gonna learn a ton because while it's been really fun watching people make decisions and, uh, and watching leaders figure out how to do this stuff. The course will actually teach us how to apply this to a much broader swath of issues. And so I expect to learn a lot about how to think about these things. And, um, and the last point is, you know, it's an interesting foray for Brown, right? Because we don't do this kind of stuff very much. We teach courses in pretty traditional ways, undergrads and graduate students. But I think the ways in which the world is changing, universities have an obligation uh, to teach people who are not kind of our traditional students. And it's not even like executive education, it's just a different model. It's in the middle of crises, universities have to step up and pull together knowledge and share it widely and and in constructive ways. And that's uh, what this is about. So I think this is part of a broader strategy that Brown is thinking about which is how do we engage and be more relevant in the world in the middle of crises? How do we bring our expertise to bear? And I love that by the way, cause that's of course what I think all universities should be doing. And I'm particularly excited that Brown is doing it.
0: Yeah, that sounds like such a great resource for so many people. Um, so before we end, we wanted to also touch on something else kind of fun, which I guess is Valentine's day. And we specifically wanted to, bring up this article that was published in the Brown Noser, which is the satirical newspaper that's written by Brown undergrads. So this is a joke, but it was um, headline Paxson clarifies that every student allowed one little kiss on Valentine's Day. And and (laughs) (laughs) that is obviously a joke, but we just wanted to ask in all seriousness, like how should students on college campuses like Brown be approaching making new friends or new romantic relationships during this COVID semester?
2: Oh, boy, that is a really hard question because those are really important things. Um, Social, personal, romantic relationships are like the heart of being human. Right. And so how long can you continue to suspend these things? Um, So, look, I mean, first of all, it's much easier if you can do stuff in pods. You can't uh, always. Um, The issue around this in my mind is um, we have we have added a, a set of protections that obviously make life much, much easier here in terms of um, not just the mass stuff, but I think the fact that people are getting tested on an ongoing basis. Um, I, I do think people like I, I think it's totally safe for people to spend time outdoors together. I think there's there are things that people can do uh, and I'm not going to like obviously I'm not going to say people should feel uncomfortable on, on, on Valentine's Day violating their pod rules uh, because it is risky. And right now it's particularly so with these variants circulating. Um, But so I feel like I don't have a great answer beyond I'm really sympathetic to the moment we're in. I think there are ways of socializing with people that is uh, safer than others. And, um, And I guess the other thing I will say is I expect that uh, all of this is gonna start really meaningfully turning around in the next couple of months. I think there'll be more vaccines. There'll be plenty of vaccines by April, May. So if people can hold on a little bit longer, that will help. If you can't try to do things more safely, um, there is no perfect thing here, but um, it's hard to tell people to just completely ignore Valentine's Day if that's important to you. So uh, some amount of risk is probably just a reality of life in a pandemic. How's that for a non-answer? I feel like I didn't really give you an answer. I I went right up to the edge. It's very hard, right? Because on one hand, like the right answer is you can't do anything. But the reality is like, that's just not life. And asking people to suspend life forever or forever, it's just not, I think it's not realistic. So I think people have to make trade-offs and people have to make choices and understand there are risks. And as long as we're, I think, all open and, and transparent about it, that's really all you can expect.
0: Yeah, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And we're all looking forward to these changes with the vaccination rates going up and everything over the next few months. So we'll continue to see everything unfold in hopefully a more bright way. But um, yeah, thanks so much again for being here with us um, this week. And we look forward to more conversations to come this semester.
2: That sounds great. See you all very soon and, and stay well.
0: This podcast was produced by the Brown Daily Herald. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on our website, browndailyherald.com. Feel free to email us at herald@browndailyherald.com if you have any questions, and thanks for listening.